I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey everyone, Dana here. So we are actually cutting this season of El Empire a little bit short. This will be our final episode. With everything happening in the world, we're just trying to refocus and kind of reshuffle our priorities across the company. That said, thank you so much for everyone that's been listening to El Empire this season and last. We've enjoyed producing every second of this show. So for our final episode, who could be more fitting to round this all out than our very own Hibba Fisher, my favorite CEO in the world, co-founder of Carning Cultures, the Middle East's first venture-backed podcast network. Hibba launched Kerning Cultures with co-founder Azana Zayani in 2015, and since 2017 has been running the network solo. That means raising money, pitching shows, producing stories, running marketing, organizing listening events, and a million other things that frankly I do not know how she fits into her day. Hibba works harder than anyone I know. I spoke to her one evening last week. I was at home in LA. Hibba was in Seattle. I actually love that we're on the same time zone. She was in her closet, and I was in this makeshift setup that our sound engineer, Mohamed Khrezat, had helped me build via FaceTime. This was likely the thousandth time I've spoken to her across the six years of working together. But this time was a bit emotional for me. You know, Kerning Culture's growth has been so rapid that we hadn't ever before stopped and looked backwards. And you know, every podcast and every episode that we air marks a moment in our lives for each of us on the team. And if I can be personal for a little bit, Kerning Cultures has been a part of my life for six years now. And in those six years, I've had some of the happiest and hardest moments of my life. And so as I sat down to interview Hiba about the past, all of this kind of came up to the surface and, you know, without even knowing it, Hiba and this team has been a source of support and strength and deep friendship for me throughout everything. And I can't tell you how much that means to me. So I tried really hard to keep it together during this interview, but there are moments where I burst into tears. Luckily, one of the perks of working here is that I get to edit those parts out. I loved getting to know Hiba in a way that I hadn't before, and I hope you do too. I want to thank our amazing team for really being so excited about this episode 
and particularly Shahid Bani Ode, who was the one that WhatsApped me after our weekly check-in calls and said I absolutely had to do an interview with Hiba as our final episode, and she was totally right. So Shahid, thank you. Another thing I want to mention is that this episode is much longer than usual. Given it's Hiba and given it's our last episode, we thought it would be a good idea to just let it all out. So I hope you stick with us. I used to tell my father, you will see one day, I will make a film and I will go to Cannes. <laughs> I don't know why I say that. I felt insulted. I was like, where is my audience? I didn't go to therapy. I think I should. This is an empire. Stories of exceptional Arabs around the world and their journey to the top. I don't think I asked you this, but like of your journey building KC, I want to know the highest high that you felt and the lowest low that you felt. <laughs> um, well, I will say that it's it's been a roller coaster and I think it'll continue to be a roller coaster. Um, the biggest high was when we closed our seed round uh, and when the first check hit our bank account and it was more money than I've ever had in my bank account. And I literally, (laughs) I took a screenshot and sent it to our family WhatsApp group. I was so, I was really proud. I was really, really proud. Um, Again, because not only are we, (laughs) are we an Arab company, an Arab startup, we're a media company and we're run by women like this is like the trifecta of hard uh to to try and get investment capital uh for um so that that was that that was legit that that was really great um i i think the the hardest low i think the hardest low was when uh rizan when my co-founder stepped back i think that was the hardest low like I, I love her. I still, I mean, we're we're still very good friends, alhamdulillah, and um, and we were very good to each other through it. But it really did feel like getting a divorce um, to have somebody say, "I'm I'm not I'm not along for this ride anymore." That was that was really really hard. Um, and I and I, of course, I respect her her decision. But uh, yeah, that that was moving past that and figuring out how to. Yeah, figuring out how to rebuild, really. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. (laughs) Are you recording? I am recording. I'm recording. Um... Hiba, I've prepared zero questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just going to wing this one. That sounds great. <laughs> okay, so many questions. <laughs> but first, but first, the biggest one of all. Do you, Hiba Fisher, agree to um, this interview and that Kerning Cultures holds all rights to edit and... Do whatever we want with your audio. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. 
I agree. Okay. Uh, what was your day like today? Tell me. What was my day like today? Um, I woke up at five o'clock. Uh, I had, I'm in Seattle. Um, and so I had a call at five 30, uh, with some people in Dubai and I had a couple of calls thereafter. And then I went back to sleep for an hour <laughs> because I just, the bed was, was really appealing. Um, and then I've just been sitting at the kitchen table working. Uh, we're all under quarantine. Um, and so I worked for a couple of hours and then I went with my dad who's here. He's been here for a week and a half. Alhamdulillah. He came in from Jeddah. Um, we went to the grocery store and bought way more things than we needed to. And now I'm talking to you. Hiba, I kind of wanted to start at the very beginning. You have three siblings, four? Three siblings. Three siblings. And what do you think your siblings would say if I asked them what you were like as a kid? <laughs> um, okay, well, for context, I'm the youngest of three siblings. I have uh, my older sister, Aya. She's five and a half years older than me. Um and then my brother, Bido, uh, his nickname, his real name is Abdullah. And, uh, and then Timo, uh, nickname, his real name is Taimur. And then me. And so uh, as a little kid, and I would say probably up until even like five or six years ago, um, I adored my sister very much and wanted to be just like her and drove her crazy because I imitated everything that she did and tried to wear all her clothes without asking. Um and uh, and my brothers, I was um, I would say growing up, I was closer to my brothers because we were closer in age. Uh, and so, Timo, um, Timo and I would he would make up these games for us to play around the house, like hide and seek. But to catch the other person, you had to like stick your foot in their face, um, which was really fun. And uh, and my other brother, uh, Beto, and I were. Um, were the quieter ones in the family. And so it, he, we, I think we just, like, our souls are a lot more aligned. And uh, and so I would have long conversations with him um, until this day. But how they would describe me growing up, so my sister would describe me as annoying. Um, <laughs> my brothers, I think, I would, yeah, they'd probably call me a bookworm as well. I used to read a ton of books. Uh, we would go... We lived in New Jersey uh, when I was younger, and so there were public libraries, and we'd go to the public library, and I'd get a bag full of, like, 50 books at a time. Uh, they were, like, stupid books, by the way. There was this um, series called Sweet Valley High that, <laughs> which, which was... Yeah, I used to read it, too. Do you know Sweet Valley? My dad... I did. I did. We had so <laughs> many of them, too. They're really so many. There, it's a very empty-headed book, and so my dad would always. Um, he had this policy that for every, I think it was for every three or for every five Sweet Valley High books, I had to get one like intellectual book, and so there was like some historical book in there or something or other. But I, um, I, I would just, yeah, I, I read read a lot growing up. Do you remember any of any of those books that, like, you still think of or you went back to or that you remember? Oh, uh, a lot of them. There's actually one sitting in our bookshelf right now, and I don't know. I think my sister uh, picked it up recently. Um, it's called The Power of One, and it's about this boy in South Africa who learns how to box. And I remember reading that in middle school, and that's why I started kickboxing. Um, so that, that's one of the books. <laughs> Wait, you kickbox? 
I do. I do. I what? started in high school. I trained. I sorry. I trained. Uh, it was. It's a type of martial arts called zendo kickboxing in Bahrain. Uh, was the was the uh, where I learned, and so I trained for four years, and then I was uh, uh, training in college as well. I never sparred. I don't know how to punch somebody, by the way, but I enjoy going up against a bag. It, it's a nice way to relieve stress, and so I um, was part of a, a team for a while, and then I've just been. I I at the I find gyms that have boxing bags, and so I go by myself. That's amazing. Um, I, again, I can't beat anybody up, but I have a, a pretty tough punch. I'm sure you can. <laughs> have like, you ever tried? You probably no, can. No, I've never tried. <laughs> I've never tried. I'm sure you can. I never knew this about you. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of people, when they hear your name, especially on Kerning Cultures, they hear an Arab first name and a foreign last name. Can you break the mystery for everyone about your background? <laughs> Yeah, um, well, it's, it's pretty simple, and you can hear it in my name. Uh, so um, my mother's Egyptian, and my father's American. Uh, so my dad's name is Fisher, and uh, and my parents decided to name me Hiba uh, because I was actually an accident as a child, <laughs> and my mom didn't <laughs> want any kids after the first three, and then I, she had a beautiful perspective to call me Hiba, which means gift in Arabic. How did your parents meet? Oh, they have an epic love story. Um, so my dad uh, was working in Cairo at the time. So as an American, this is in the 70s. And um, and so he was working for a consulting firm and they had this position overseas and nobody in the office wanted to go to Egypt. And my dad said, oh, I'll go. That sounds cool. Um, and so he was working there for a while. And then uh, through friends, he ended up meeting my mom, um, who had just moved back from Paris. She'd been in Paris for about eight years working as a translator for the UN. And um, and if you can put this in context, my mom's uh, approaching her late 20s as a single Egyptian lady, not married. Uh, and so her parents were like, <laughs> come back home and get married, please. Um, so she moved back to Alexandria, where um, my, my family's from. And she was actually, um, she was basically engaged to this really wealthy Egyptian guy when she met my dad through mutual friends. Um, and the way that she talks about it, she says that this other potential man um, was the kind of person that she'd have to wear makeup to bed for, uh, like she'd just be a trophy wife. Um, but when she met my father, she felt really comfortable and and my dad would write her poetry and <laughs> and all this stuff. And so they fell in love. And um, and it was a huge scandal in the family because my dad was is white and American. And at the time, he was Christian. Um, but he embraced Islam. And uh, and then even when that happened, uh, they, they, there's stories in my family. So my dad um, was living in Cairo. My mom was in Alexandria, which is about a two-hour distance by car. And so he came like seven times to her house to ask for her hand in marriage and nobody would open the door mm -hmm. um, because oh, wow. he was this Yani Wahid Aganab, he's this foreigner. And um, and then finally it was my uh, eldest, my grandfather had already passed away at this point. So it was my eldest uncle, um, who said like, look, he's Muslim. So it's, if it's okay in the eyes of God, then who are we to say no, just because he's not of our culture. 
Um, yeah. Did he convert for you? Converted for your mom? He did. He did. Um, and yeah, so they they ended up getting married, and um, and I learned this uh, only recently that my, another uncle, uh, like it was a huge, huge scandal in the family. Very few people came to the small celebration that they had, and then even my uncle, who I love very, very much, another uncle, not the one that said it was okay for them to get married, didn't speak to my parents for years, um, and Jeez. and now everybody loves my dad and. And it's not an issue at all. And my mom jokes that she took like all the garbage in the family. Uh, and now so many of my cousins and aunts and uncles have married, you know, French partners or German or whatever it <laughs> might be. And she's like, I took all the Zavella, I took all the trash and paved the way for you. Uh, but my mom's always been a rebel like that. I often hear you talk about your parents. It's one of the things that I really love about you. And, and I know that they've always been really supportive, but... Um, can you tell me what they're like as people? They're uh, they're both very different. Um, so my mom is my mom taught me how to love. Like she's such a she's one of those mothers. She I mean she had a very successful career, um, and then she put everything on the side to take care of us kids. And she's literally dedicated her whole life to to raising us and to our family. Um, and uh, and she she taught us you know really how to be together as a family and we're very very close all all of us siblings and our our extended family as well and uh, my mom also taught me strength she's one of the strongest people that I know um, and she also has this insane sense of humor that comes out of nowhere because she's like you meet her <laughs> so you meet her and she's kind of a foreboding personality when you meet with her <laughs> but if you if yeah, if you sit with her long enough, and then she just she cracks you up in in the most unexpected ways. And my dad, um, my dad, I think taught all of his kids a very strong work ethic. He's very entrepreneurial. He's he's always he's such a curious mind as well. Yani, mashallah, like he's. I remember when I was in high school, he got his PhD, and and this was quite late in his life, and and so he. When he uh, got his PhD, I remember he turned to me and he said, you know, Hiba, one of the reasons that I I, I studied at this age in, in my career is I wanted to teach you kids that you never stop learning. You know, like, like life yeah. is is all about learning. Um, and it's something that I hold very, very dear to me. And, and my dad is someone you can get into, like, <laughs> I mean, we, we kind of tease him as kids, but he's always interested in another business idea. And so I've learned about, you know, farming grasshoppers and Islamic insurance and financial literacy apps. And just every other year, there's like another business endeavor that he's excited about. Um, and and I think that that's really incredible that he's he's so excited by life still. Um, and will can, yeah. I don't think he'll ever retire. Um, yeah, uh, those are those are my two parents. <laughs> so you grew up where? Talk to me about like you were born and then where you grew up and where you ended up going to school. Uh, we moved around a lot. Um, so I was born in the States. Um, I was born in uh, Washington, D.C., in the U.S. And then um, we lived in New Jersey for the first 12 years of my life. Um, we So I was born, we moved immediately to New Jersey. And then uh, 
And then when I was about 12, we moved to Jeddah. So my dad got a job working for an investment bank in Jeddah. And he'd actually moved um, a year or two before us, which was really, really hard uh, growing up and, and not having my dad around as often. He used to travel a lot. And then that, that period, I remember, was really, really hard. Um, so we joined him in Jeddah and I went to middle school in Jeddah. And then, uh, and then from Jeddah, we moved to Bahrain. He... Uh, switch jobs for another another investment bank in Bahrain at the time. Um, and so I went to high school in Bahrain. Uh, and both of those periods were, were wonderful. Um, they were really, really, really beautiful times. And I think it was like growing up, I don't know if you had this experience, Dana, because I know you spent some time in the States, but growing up as a mixed kid, half Egyptian, half American in the U.S., like the U.S. teaches you to assimilate and that to be different is, you know, wrong. Um, and so when I was, you know, first years of my life, like I wasn't, I wasn't proud <laughs> of where I came from. I didn't, I just wanted to be white. Like I didn't want to be different. And then after high school, I came back to the U.S. for college. I went to the University of Virginia. Um, I studied something called global development studies, uh, which was we were the first class to graduate with it. Uh, it was a small major. We were 22 kids. And uh, you basically went into that degree if you wanted to change the world, <laughs> which is what we all did and from different uh, perspectives. So some were doing it for public health, some were uh, wanted to go work for the UN. Um, I was obsessed with microfinance, which is this idea of giving small finance to small businesses and the the particularly the businesses and the entrepreneurs who can't get credit or financing from traditional sources like banks. Um, and, uh, and so that's what I studied and UVA as, as it's called the University of Virginia was, it was really magical. It was a beautiful, beautiful campus, really, really wonderful school that, uh, taught you, I, I think like the one thing I learned in, in college was how to think critically. That was, um, that was a really, uh, yeah, like I, I have to say studying something called global development, which is basically anthropology, um, I graduated not knowing what kind of skills I would have to offer the workforce. <laughs> and that um, that was like, you know, I, I think my my senior year of school, I, I was like, did I study the right thing? Because I don't know what I'm meant to be doing. Um, but but the one thing it did teach me was how to think critically, which I appreciate because I'm pretty sure that's a lifelong skill. And then what happened after when you graduated? What did you do? Um, so incidentally, I had interned, uh, there was an Islamic, uh, it was the first Islamic microfinance bank in Bahrain had opened. I, I spent a summer interning there, um, and I was a very opinionated intern. Um, and, uh, and so the, I basically asked the CEO to hire me when I graduated, which he <laughs> said, sure. And, um, <laughs> but, uh, so I graduated from university in, in 2011, which is the year of the Arab Spring. And, um, and it, the Arab Spring didn't hit Bahrain as heavily as it did in places like Egypt, but it, for such a small island country, it really decimated the economy. And so my senior year of college, I had this, you know, job lined up uh, to go back home and, and work for this uh, microfinance bank. And I remember calling the CEO. So I graduated in May and I called him in March and he said, look, like none of my employees are coming to work. <laughs> you know, the streets are full of protesters. Like I can't, 
I can't guarantee anything. Uh, and so I look around me and all of my uh, peers who are graduating have, you know, consulting gigs lined up and different jobs. And I'm like, well, I don't, <laughs> I have nothing. Um, but uh, so I was a part of this student club uh, called Social Entrepreneurs for Economic, stu- no, Student Entrepreneurs for Economic Development. We called it SEED. And, uh, and we used to do, okay, <laughs> this is what I mean by save the world types. So we used to do these consulting uh, projects. God knows why NGOs would work with us because we didn't know what we were doing. But we would do these consulting projects with these different organizations around the world. And, and so we were invited to this town hall meeting in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I went to school about a potential microloan program for the local community. And so I was at this town hall meeting and they were talking about starting a microloan program. And there was these three business leaders in the community who turned to me and said, hey, like, why don't you, you see, you know, you have some ideas about this. Why don't you work on this? And over the next couple of weeks, they said, look, we need somebody to write, uh, write and research a business plan for this, for this microfinance program that we want to start why don't you do it? Because your job oper- your job prospects have disappeared in Bahrain and, you know, just stay this summer and uh, and then maybe by then things will have settled and, and you can go back. So that's that's what I ended up doing. So when I graduated, I stayed on in, uh, in Charlottesville, um, Virginia. Um, and uh, and we and we built this this organization and the organization is still going today, which which is pretty cool to <laughs> to to see it blossom. And then did you continue in the microfinance world? Uh, a little ancillary too. So um, so two years after, uh, I was starting to get homesick, uh, really, really homesick. I was living alone. Like I lived in, so one way that we uh, kind of bootstrapped uh, CIC, this, this microfinance program was um, my board members uh, let me live in their... <laughs> extra houses. Um, and so I would, so I living in a big house by myself for two years, that was, uh, taught me a lot about myself, frankly. Um, but it was also very, very lonely. I mean, I had friends, but it's not the same. Um, so I wanted to move back home and home at the time was Dubai. My, my parents, uh, in 2011, when everything happened in Bahrain, they moved to Dubai. And so I joined them in, uh, in 2013. And, um, and again, like graduating with a degree in global development studies, like I really struggled for a long time uh, with like what, what commercial skills do I offer this world? Like how, how can I translate what I know. Like I didn't learn coding. I didn't learn architecture. You know, I didn't learn any of these very concrete skills. And so there was this group that was starting the first incubator uh, for startups in Dubai. And um, and that seemed like a very similar experience in terms of helping to build this community. Um, and so actually before I left, uh, before I flew home, I was already um, applying for that job, which in hindsight, I shouldn't have done because there was a, a a period in my life which I hope I've <laughs> I hope I've overcome where I uh, defined my self worth by the fact that I was doing something which I didn't I, I I hope I hope I'm over that point and so I was really terrified of okay what I don't want to go home and do nothing um, and so I I think I was very quick to jump into the next thing uh, when 
I'm actually kind of curious if I hadn't done Impact Hub, what might have happened. But but what I ended up doing was um, joining this team. It's called Impact Hub, which is this global network of incubators and, and co-working spaces around the world. Um, I think they're in like 90 cities or something insane. And uh, and so we were building the first uh, hub, the first impact hub for the Arab world in Dubai, which this was in 2013 where there were no co-work, like co-working actually was not allowed. Uh, <laughs> like there were no co-working spaces in the UAE and there were no incubators. And so this was really the first of its kind of community, um, which I, I love doing. I love bringing people together and I love building community. And so I was the... The first hire, um, and uh, and I managed the operations and built all the processes, and we built two uh, startup programs for entrepreneurs, and um, it was it was great, and it was also extremely exhausting, and I burnt out uh, regularly. Like I remember, my dad would drive me to work, and I would uh, cry on my way. <laughs> I would cry on my way to work because it was just way too much. Like we were seeing hundreds of entrepreneurs a day and I would stay at the office until like 2 a.m. and come back the next morning at 8 and I just poured so much of myself into that place and it was really really exhausting. What was it about you that was attracted to entrepreneurship even back then? Um, I think I definitely uh, I think a lot of it was driven by what I saw in my father for sure. I think I, it was just something that was familiar and something that I looked up to and admired. Um, and then on a more basic level, I think I really, I, I really like the idea of building things. I think that that is, I think there's something just, yeah, I love, I love the idea of contributing through building a company that, you know, provides employment for people and provides a value or service to people and, um, and figuring out how all of that works sustainably was was always something that that I thought that that I really believe in, and and I I think this this idea of you know being masters of your own destiny kind of thing is is uh, because you you know you you're running this company, you're building this company. I think I don't know that always attracted me a lot more than being an employee. So you're in Dubai and you did two years of Impact um, Impact Hub, working with entrepreneurs in the Arab world. At what point did you start thinking about your own company? Well, so I left Impact Hub. So I I, I really burnt out and I had to take a couple of months off. Um, and if you can kind of visualize this with, this with me. So I'd been pretty steady on this career path for a couple of years of supporting startups, whether it was through microfinance or, you know, this incubator or business education or whatever it might be. And this is what I had studied in college and had read about in high school. And um, and to feel so miserable, <laughs> for lack of a better word, doing it, I, I, I really didn't know where that left me in life. Um, so I, I, I took a couple of months off um, and uh, and spent them just thinking, uh, frankly. And, and I actually spent some time with, with a good friend of mine who had this fireplace. Uh, this was wintertime, and I would, like, lie on the carpet next to the fireplace and just record voice memos to myself, which is pretty prescient given that we started a podcast company. But um, <laughs> And I would just talk to myself and try and figure out, like, why was that last experience so hard? What what had I done? Like, what role did I play in that? And what did I want to do? What could make me happy? 
Um, and a couple of things came out of that, which one was I felt like I had stopped learning. Uh, and so I wanted to do something where I would con like I could always just keep learning. And um, and the second was I wanted to be more in control. I think the the experience at Impact Hub where I like I maybe I've matured and figured out how to do this, but I um like I give so much of myself into whatever job I'm doing. Uh, and so if, if I don't like, I could, I basically, I didn't trust myself to work for anybody else. Like I, cause only I knew my boundaries and like what was healthy for me, whereas somebody else might take advantage of how much I'm willing to put in. Um, and then the last thing was I, I wanted to do something that I really, really believed in. Um, and I didn't really know what that was just yet, but, uh, a couple of weeks into brainstorming, I, I thought of just telling stories would be fun and, and something that we really needed, uh, in the Arab world. And, and the, the choice of a podcast, it started just as a podcast. It didn't start as a podcast company, as you know, Dana, cause you were there from the beginning, but the idea of, of starting a podcast was, uh, was just because I, I loved podcasts and I was obsessed with them and. And I thought that that would be a fun, a fun thing to try. And of course, I had no idea how to do it at all. Um, but uh, but when I sort of when all of this kind of coalesced into an idea of okay, let's start a podcast. Um, there's there's this really awesome uh, entrepreneurship program called MIT Arab Enterprise uh, Forum that happens every year. It's basically the startup competition that you apply for. They accept a certain number of candidates and then um, you all congregate in Riyadh or Kuwait or Bahrain or Cairo or wherever for basically a week of workshops um, and then this pitch competition and the winners uh, take home some cash prizes. And so I applied and I got accepted, went to Kuwait and did not win anything at all at this competition. <laughs> But I did meet Ramzi Bashur, who uh, who happened to be the videographer capturing this whole experience. Um, and he and I kept, you know, going off to the side and have, getting into these long conversations uh, because he has a background in sound. And he ended up becoming our first our first sound engineer um, and still does some work with us today. And yeah, that's how Casey started. <laughs> Why did you call it Kernan Cultures? Uh, so I didn't come up with the name, actually. Um, I suck at naming things. Like, absolutely. <laughs> I don't even know how to nickname anybody. Like, I don't... I, I can attest. <laughs> I can attest to poor um, choice of titles. Pretty pretty terrible. Um, but a friend, a friend of a friend, actually, has an advertising company uh, in Pakistan. And so um, he... Uh, he came up first. The first name he came up with was Delta, actually. And then he hung up and called back and said, no, you know, it sounds like a podcast, Kerning Cultures. And I was like, what does Kerning mean? And so I had to Google it. And then and then when I understood what it meant, the metaphor behind the name uh, of, you know, the spaces in between cultures uh, was was really awesome. And I thought that that was perfect. Thinking of a podcast back then, especially in the Arab world, wasn't something that was really common. And and I wonder, 
I wonder if there was a, a specific episode or podcast that you listened to where you thought th- a version of this needs to be done in the Arab world. Radiolab. <laughs> Tell me more. Uh, well, we've done an episode on El Empire with, with Jed, so you guys will know my obsession with him and Radiolab, but it, it just is this beautiful... It instills such a such a beautiful sense of wonder into how the world works um, from a science perspective, from a historical perspective, from a social perspective. Um, and it's just these stories that decorate, you know, I, I love, love listening to, to Radio Lab when I'm going on long drives or going for a run. And it just they're they really, really take you up in a way into these into these story worlds. Um and and I I wanted to do something like that with all the stories around me. So so I would say one of the one of the really great things about working at Impact Hub was, I mean I, I was new to Dubai, um, but I would meet hundreds of people on a daily basis who would come through our doors, and their stories were always so inspiring. You know these entrepreneurs who are building really really cool companies that had never been built before uh in in the region um and and then i would turn on the radio <laughs> in dubai and you don't hear any of that right you just like it literally it's so bad um and i don't mean to hate on it but but really we can do so much better with our storytelling um and and so i i i wanted to to blend that i wanted to to tell really good stories that that captured all the cool stuff that I knew was going on around us and then figuring out how to do that, as you know, <laughs> as you know, Dana, because again, you've been there since the beginning. Um, that, that took several years, but, but that was, that was the, that was the dream, at least at the very beginning, which, which, which we carry through to this day. But you lost in Kuwait and then you met Ramzi there, which was, I find so serendipitous, and then how did it, how did you progress? How did you take that failure and then move forward? And like for any entrepreneur that's listening, what were the steps that you took after that little fall, I guess? Yeah. Uh, well, so I went back home. So by the way, I'm living at home, so I don't pay rent. So that's great. <laughs> so I have, um, I have a, a, you know, I have some savings that I've uh, had because my costs are pretty minimal. Um, and, uh, and I, um, I, I hired Ramzi. So he was, he was the first person to join KC and he taught me a lot about sound and recording and what gear to get and how to do interviews. And, um, and I basically fumbled my way through the first three episodes. Your first few episodes were about entrepreneurship. Yeah. yeah, Right. Yeah. Yeah. You start with what you know. Yeah. Today is part three in our series of startup scenes across the Middle East. This time, we're looking at Egypt. A quick heads up, some of the recordings are in Arabic. Egypt is a very special place in my heart. I claim half my identity to this noisy, loving, energetic nation. A massive country of 90 million people, Egypt is home to some of the most influential media and creative exports to the rest of the Middle East. 
Music, film, and literature often start in Egypt, and known as well for raising a youth driven to make an impact. Young Egyptians. So then, then you came into our lives and made everything better. Um, and and uh, and and then we continued. It was the three of us. We just kind of fumbled our way through. And I think putting out it was really important that we put out those first couple of episodes. Um, and by the way, like we launched, we launched with four episodes. I think they we released them one a week <laughs> and then there was silence for like six months <laughs> because it, <laughs> it took so long to make the next ones um we thought we had given ourselves enough buffer but it was not enough um and uh, but I, but putting out those first four episodes meant that there was something out there for other people to hear and so slowly that's how basically our entire team found us so uh i i think razan uh, when I was looking for a producer, um, she replied back to me on Facebook, and we started working on a on a on a story about farming in the UAE together. And I just thought she was very so brilliant, and I loved the way that she was approaching the story. And so I think pretty soon after, <laughs> I was like, Razan, would you like to be my co-founder?" And she said yes. And and um, and then I think Alex Atak uh, found us through an article in the National, I think, or. I, I actually can't remember. I remember meeting him for coffee the very first time because he had emailed us. And um, but but I, I I think those initial episodes and just putting them out there as like I listen to them now and they're so bad. Except yours, Dana. Yours is good. But no, <laughs> mine was the three that <laughs> mine was so bad. It was like the audio quality was so terrible. Oh my god! Every time I listen to that episode, I have to laugh because I mean none of us really knew what we were doing, but. Yeah, I guess we had a sense of story and just loved podcasts. So we just kind of, I don't know, we winged it. Yeah, I think we were just imitating all the stuff that we loved. Um, but even though those first episodes, like they, they really make me cringe when I listen to them. I think putting them out there for the world to hear was really important because it was a clear demonstration of what we wanted to do. Um, and so... Every, literally everyone who was a producer on Kerning Cultures in those first couple of years found us because they had heard those episodes um, and had said, you know, this this is something I want to be a part of. So Razan and I invested our savings into Kerning Cultures and we worked on it for, for two years together. Um, and it, it, was, it was a haphazard team, right? Like people came in and out, people were volunteering, um, we went through a couple of iterations of, of different producers and everybody was learning trial by fire, right? Like we just watched YouTube tutorials and took as many classes online as we could and did, you know, really bad interviews and just like we, we, we figured it out, I, I think, uh, because it's not like we could, you know, go work for somebody around us. There, there weren't any other podcast companies in the Arab world and, there were very few podcasters at all uh, to to kind of model ourselves after. We were we were really, I think, modeling ourselves after all the shows that we loved abroad. Um, and from a practical standpoint, I mean, I, I want to stress the fact that, like, I again, I was in a very privileged position. I was living at home. My parents fed me. <laughs> you know, like I I had very few expenses, and so I was able to invest everything I had saved into you know, commissioning producers or sound designers and, and things like that. But our costs were, were very, very lean and, and we weren't making money. Uh, it was 
it was just I would I, I think we spent our first three and a half years just honing our craft um, and focusing on that part and and then in January 2018 there was an opportunity to to apply for this accelerator in San Francisco which is it's called Matter, um, and it it was one of only two accelerators in the world that I had ever heard of that focused on media companies. Um, because a lot of the times, incubators and accelerators they they love to to support like your typical tech entrepreneurship. Um, and so this idea of supporting a media company was 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 really quite powerful. And um, and as part of the accelerator, they invested fifty thousand US into your company, uh, and so. We applied, um, we got accepted, um, but that I think like really kickstarted things. Like now we had a lot more cash uh, and and as part of the program, so every, so it was a five month program and at the end of every month they had what they called a creative review or a design review. I can't remember the terminology now, but basically you had to pitch your company to a room full of people, like different experts or different media professionals. And every person uh, seated on a chair had a had a piece of paper where they would give you feedback as you were pitching. So your pitch was five minutes long. And at the end, you would get the stack of papers of every single idea that had run through every person's head, um, which was really, really helpful for Ada to hear what it was that you were saying in the ears of somebody else. And then B, for for me to figure out like all the holes in the business concept and all the ways that we could try and tighten it. Um, and yeah, so on the back of, of Matter, that's that's when we started fundraising properly for for our seed round. Matter was a was a really pivotal moment, I think, for us as a company, right? Because I think it was the first time that we kind of got um, a Western perspective on on the company and on our work. What were some of the things that you took away from that? Yeah, I, I think matter was really pivotal. Um, and one of the one of the biggest ways was um, so I think language is really powerful, and the words that we use and the things that we tell ourselves become be, literally become the realities in front of us. And and what I mean by that is before matter and during, I would say up until probably 75% of the way through the program, um, I referred to Kerning Cultures as a podcast. And it, it's, it's, it's interesting because um, when, we, when we applied to Matter, I talked about it as a podcast network. But in all of my day-to-day language and in the signature of my email and the business cards that we used, I talked about I have a podcast. Kerning Cultures is a podcast. And matter the reflection of that in the program always came back and said don't you want to build a network aren't you a network like think bigger than just a podcast um and and that was when that all switched so business cards changed email signature changed the way that we pitched the company changed from kerning cultures like it's so interesting i see um at our home uh, in, in in Dubai, in my parents' home, on our fridge, we have these stickers that we that we print. Like throughout our years, we keep printing these stickers, and it says "Kerning Cultures, a Middle East podcast." <laughs> you know, like even even little things like that. Um, and so, th- I, I would say that was the biggest takeaway of matter is like really the structural shift of 
We're not building a podcast. We're building a podcast network. Um, and and then that just kind of that that change filtered down into everything that we did, and and we started to think about new shows. We started to think about you know producing in Arabic. We started to think about a bigger team. Like everything was when you're thinking so small, it, it was always going to just be that small, you know, opening up the lid. Frankly, how did you get investors to invest in a company that was very much Mina based? And what was your elevator pitch to them about? about Kerning Cultures? Um, so our so we have investors uh, in the US, but we have investors, most of our investors are in the region. Um, so that sell was much easier, I would say, from the perspective of investing in, a, in an Arab company for, for the Middle East. Um, what was really hard <laughs> was to get investment into a media company <laughs> because people don't invest in media. And especially, I mean, we've talked about this on some episodes of, of Kerning Cultures and, and just in general. I mean, the startup scene in the Arab world is still very much in its beginning stages. Um, and so it, it, just the ecosystem is, is still building out from, from a capital perspective, from a talent perspective, from a market perspective, all of that. And so the investment that exists more often than not will go into typical either real estate or it'll go into more traditional tech companies. And so to come and say, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a content creation company, <laughs> give me money and I will give you a, a handsome return is really hard. That, that part was really hard. Um, but I think what, what really tipped it for us was the global landscape. So the fact that Spotify spent 500 million U.S. dollars on podcast companies that year and, and it happened like we closed our round in May. And I think the Spotify acquisition of Gimlet Media, the American podcast company for $230 million, which Kerning Cultures is very much modeling ourselves after, um, that happened like a few weeks before we closed. And I remember as soon as I got that email, I forwarded it to all of our, all of the investors we were talking. I was like, see, this is going to be us. You know, this is going to wait a couple of years. And we're, we're the Middle East podcast industry is where the U.S. podcast industry was five years ago. You know, this is our moment. Like if you want you if you want to ride this wave, like get in, get in on it now. Um yeah, so that's that's how we did it. But it, it was it was really hard. It took us eight months. It took us eight months to close to close our seed round. How did you how did you have the amount of insight to to and the confidence to be able to say I'm Kerning Cultures is going to be like Gimlet Media. Give us a couple of years. Like that is a really big statement, and and I I believe it myself. But because I also believe in you and believe in us as a team and because I'm intimately involved, but, but to others, that, that's a big statement. And, and how did you like, yeah, wh where did you get that kind of confidence and that, that strong vision and, and, um, just conviction? Uh, <laughs> um, well, I, okay. So I think, and I've I've heard I've heard a lot of entrepreneurs say this, and actually Rizlan from from the Modus talked about this as as well. That like if you're if you have this pain point as a consumer as an ordinary citizen, if there is something that's bothering you in this world, and you create a solution for it, chances are there's a lot of other people who are having that same experience and want and want that same service or good that you've created. Um, 
And so I, I think it's, I think the conviction in KC is born out of that first and foremost, that, that media, mainstream media in the Arab world is not made for us kids. It's me. It's talking to our parents' generation. It's very politicized. There's there's always an agenda behind a lot of it or the other extreme. It's very, very superficial stuff that just is, you know, made to pass the time. And we're more intelligent as a species than that. And we deserve more and we deserve things that will feed our curiosity. And, and so I believe that very much. And, um, and so I, I think it's it's born from that. And then I would say the, the 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 real confidence comes from the way that listeners and our audiences respond to our stories. And and you know this. I mean, we have this uh, channel on our team Slack uh, called Listener Reviews, where people are always pasting ratings and reviews and comments that that uh, that people have sent them. And it's it you know you, <laughs> like. If you you don't need any more encouragement than that, like there there there's 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 a comment from from a listener on a daily basis of of how our stories have you know made them love themselves a little bit more or brought them to tears or you know taught them something or and there's 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 magic in what we're creating and and that's what we're 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 just fueling that we're going to continue to tell more of these stories and and there's a business case behind that because we spend so much time watching listening consuming media um and and you can monetize that i wanted to ask you about also the the way that you hired uh and i guess as a as um leader of, of a company, what you were looking for and the people that, that you hired and, and also like the kinds of stories that you were committed to. Casey is a very non-political, non, you know, sectarian. We're very, you know, we tell human centered stories, but I just, I wonder if that was something you wanted from the very beginning or as a result of the people that you hired or talk to me a little bit about building building your team and and with that your mission and and your values as a company um i have to say i don't think that like we never we never and you, you can tell me this as well dana from those early days like I, I don't really remember sitting down and writing down necessarily our values as a company i think we've started to do that in the past two years as we realized like <laughs> like there there was sort of a self-selection into KC in the early days and and still to this day and now as we continue to grow we're like oh we we need to <laughs> we need to write down what it is exactly that we are and you know what's what pulses through our blood so that people know what to look for and we know how to hire them um but uh so so I, I don't think it was any sort of we weren't very formulaic about it in the beginning, but but what I will say that we've been really blessed with, alhamdulillah, has been attracting incredible talent um, and and really passionate individuals who who really pour their heart and souls in, in into the storytelling and um, and everybody works so hard on on our team, whether they're part time or full time, and um, and I'm, I'm I feel very honored to to work with such incredible humans. Um, I think one 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 element that has been, I would say, curated. There has been an intentionality behind the the 
the spread of the team and the fact that we're all from, you know, we're from Lebanon, we're from Palestine, we're from Saudi, we're from the UAE, we're from Egypt. Like that wasn't accidental. I think that that was something that we scouted for and and selected based on that. Um, And so you can hear that in the kinds of diversity of the storytelling. Uh, And then um, and then I think. Another thing that was intentional was we're, you know this, I mean, we're a very flat organization, right? It's not like we all make decisions together and um, we decide what shows we want to do next. And and I think that that, that sort of buy-in from everybody on the team on what we're working on um, also means it, it, it seeps through into the edit- editorial decisions that we make, that everybody feels comfortable with the story that we put out. And because we are... Like all of us, I mean, we're all in this for the same region that we all really believe in good storytelling from the Arab world. Um, but we all have, you know, we have different backgrounds and we were raised differently. And 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 I think um, I think that the fact that like every story is a collaborative effort means that the output is going to be this kind of apolitical a whatever like we're 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 all we're all more interested i think in in the people and and the personal stories than we are in trying to drive a certain agenda it's true uh okay so so we were one podcast show called kerning cultures then over the past 2 years since we got our first investment or i guess we did our finished our first round of investment we now have seven shows uh, over just over the past two years, and we've grown exponentially. We hired uh, an Arabic team, and and I what I always saw in you is a hunger for, or it, what I always saw in you was a vision for Arabic language podcasts, and that's something that you've said from the very beginning, and that's become possible over the past year and a half. Uh, and I wanted to talk about that. I want to talk about. Um, that process and that decision-making and, and also, I mean, it's been pretty (laughs) successful. Um, so tell us, tell us about that. Yeah. Um, well, I think, so there, there's always going to be, I think there's always going to be space for English podcasts. Um, but just by statistically speaking, it's a harder, it's a harder road ahead because you're in a much more saturated market. There's a ton of of Western shows in English that that listeners can tune into, um, ourselves included. I mean, that's how we all started uh, was listening to those shows. Um, so, so we always knew that we wanted to move into Arabic production. Um, I think we used the flagship Kerning Culture show as this experimental ground where we I mean we dropped a couple of Arabic episodes that would actually perform better than our English episodes and that was a good indication um and we would play around with styles and it was just this sort of like catch-all for (laughs) anything we wanted to try whether it was a producer challenge which was a good one and we're gonna do another one and um so yeah uh and then um when we closed our seed round that was we that was you know first priority was to build out an arabic team um an arab an arabic production team and and uh you know more and more um there there are more podcasts and podcast producers across the region but it's still a case of uh we had to hire it's still a case that 
there's so few. <laughs> We're a very rare breed, us podcast producers, um, that we hired uh, good storytellers first um, and then trained them on the audio piece. And so the, 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 the sort of four of us, Dana, you, Alex, um, and, and Bella, we, and, and Mohammed, who's been with us for the, for the past three years, uh, had, had been, you know, learning trial by fire of how to do this well. And so when we hired the new team, the first, uh, the first order of business was just training. Um, and, uh, and, and that took, I mean, they ramped up ridiculously fast, um, which is just a testament to how talented they are, alhamdulillah. And, and I think also to, to us in terms of how, um, like because <laughs> because we had done it for the past couple of years, like we we also saved them. I think a lot of the the angst uh, that that we went through, um, and uh, yeah, and and so yeah, they were awesome. We ramped up, and and yeah, that's all. <laughs> hey, Bum, who are you married to? Who am I married to? I'm married yeah. to a wonderful man. Tell us about it. <laughs> Tell us about him. Um, his name is Mahmoud Abdussalam. Uh, he'll probably uh, um, cringe at the fact that I'm uh, talking about him because he likes to uh, say that he has a no media policy. Um, but uh, I uh, bring him up as often as I can. Uh, he he's wonderful. He's um, he's a software engineer and he's Egyptian, and he he has. Um, really become my partner uh, in, in Kerning Culture. So when the Razan stepped back uh, two years ago, um, it's really, it's really hard. <laughs> it's, it's um, yeah, I mean, alhamdulillah, we have an amazing team and, and I think I lean on all of you. Um, it, and there's times where like I need to turn and, and talk to somebody about a strategic decision or, or brainstorm something. Um, and, and he's become that really, he's, he's, he's really like my, my business partner in Kerning Cultures. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I can't, I can't thank him enough for, for the support that he's given me over the years. What is, what is your family, your siblings and your, and your parents, what do, what do they think of Kerning Cultures? Um, they, they're really proud. Um, my dad, my dad's been, uh, <laughs> he's been a wonderful support from the beginning. I mean, I used to make him listen to our early episodes <laughs> and we'd sit and like, he would critique it and give some feedback and, and every person he talks to, he likes to talk about <laughs> craning cultures. Um, and, uh, and I told you, my mom started listening to us for the first time when we started launching Arabic. The first show she listened to actually was Bihob and she loved it. She loved it so, so much and then sent it to all of her friends, which really meant a lot to me. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I think it's interesting because my mom was actually, um, she, she was a journalist. Uh, she was, a, she was a translator and she was a journalist and, um, and I don't think I put those two, <laughs> I don't think I put that together that I followed uh, so perfectly in her footsteps until until quite recently. Um, but my parents are really proud. Uh, my siblings are, are, are also really proud. And I think it's been, um, yeah, it's, it's like they're all patrons on Patreon <laughs> and 
they're you know they um they come to the listening parties and uh that we have um and yeah i think they're they're really they're really proud of me which which means a lot as as i am of them i mean they're all hot shots and in, in their fields as well <laughs> i know that you talked a little bit about um your vision for current cultures and and waking up every day and and kind of having that vision but but can you tell me more about what what you would like where you're going with with current cultures and w- what you would like to see in the next 5 or or 10 years um why well, i i uh I know I say this in jest, but I mean it. We're, we're really building an empire, um, and we're building a, a media company that that we can all be proud of. I think that that is something that that we all really believe, and um, and it it always uh, drives me crazy when I talk to friends um, who say, you know, there's nothing nothing cool happening in in the Arab world, right? Like to to get good music, you have to go to Berlin, and to get good coffee, you have to go to London, and and that's just and and it's a consequence of the fact that we don't tell our own stories um and so i i want to change that i want us to look around for all the stuff that can inspire us um as opposed to looking outside um and and to do that through really beautiful storytelling across genre i mean i, I think it like i'm so excited for this fiction show we're working on and and we're you know we're we're, we're just getting started um but i really believe in that because we're a very young <laughs> we're a very young population right 65% of the population of the arab world is under the age of 35 that's 140 million people between the ages of 15 and 35 and 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 that is yeah i mean if if we're able to to help shape perception uh of of who we are and get to know more about ourselves and i don't mean just like I mean, I think one of the really beautiful things about Kerning cultures is that we tell stories from across the entire region. Like that, that's that's pretty unusual. Um, normally, you just you know you just watch TV shows made in Egypt or made in Saudi or you know, and and so to hear these voices from Sudan and from Philistine, and I, I think I think there's something really powerful in that, getting to know each other a little more. Um, and and from a commercial perspective, I mean, we're we're building an incredibly profitable company, inshallah, built on an audience that loves us very, very much. And, you know, it's a young, educated, affluent audience is the typical demographic of a podcast listener. And and so that's a good market to advertise to and and to sell to. And um and and I if uh, if anyone's listening from these places, I'd really like for um, Spotify or Deezer or NFME to buy us in a couple of years. That'd be great. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people don't don't know this, but um, Hiba and I, and actually a lot of members of the Kerning Cultures team worked together for years and years before actually meeting each other face to face. And um, Hiba, you and I worked, I think, for like three, maybe even four years before we we ever met. And how long we've been working together now for over six years. And we've met only a handful of times. But 
it's kind of amazing how you can feel so much love for a team and for a person without ever seeing their faces. But um, our company is so global. I mean, maybe maybe you can also tell people like how do we even how does how does a team that's across six countries and nine cities operate? How do we do it? <laughs> it's magic. Um, how do we do it? I, well, <laughs> it's funny given the time that we're in with COVID because a lot more companies are embracing this <laughs> way of, way of life. And I think, you know, we, we did it just out of circumstance. Um, but I think this is the the new, the new norm moving forward. Um, we, uh, we function I mean, digitally, that's the power of the internet. <laughs> um, and so we work in a lot of collaborative uh, docs. And so all of our scripts happen in Google Docs where people can be commenting in real time and you're all working on the same document. Um, it's uh, awesome to work in audio because audio is much uh, lighter files than something like video is, which is, you know, gigabytes and gigabytes. Our, our interviews, I mean, this interview we've been going an hour and a half will probably be a couple hundred megabytes and so that's easy to put up in dropbox and um and exchange files and folders that way um we have uh, a slack group uh for our team and so different channels for different purposes um and that's a quick way to talk to each other and then i think the other things that really help is that we do regular check-ins as a team and so they are um they are typically audio conference calls because we're we're now we're now big, <laughs> and so it just it slows down internet and, and we can't hear people if we turn video on. But um, but we do weekly check in calls, what we call a stand up uh, every week as a team, and that's just once a week a dedicated time where we can all touch base with each other and troubleshoot any issues and, and talk about. Uh, talk about any wins and, and things like that. And then every um, segment of the company has has their own internal regular check-ins that they do on top of that. Um, we have WhatsApp groups and, and I think that that really helps. And, and, and I think the other piece is we're also really intentional about sharing as much as possible and getting together physically in person as often as we can. So we, we try to do as many reunions as, as, as we're allowed. Um, and then even small things like on Slack will, like every person has a profile photo. And I think that little things like that just really help make it feel like you're actually talking to a person um, and, and help help create that that sense of a, of a, of a bond and a team spirit, even when we're, you know, thousands of kilometers away from each other. You work so, so hard. Like you not only have to check in with the creative and host and listen to both English and Arabic shows and now seven shows and you're trying to raise more money and you do marketing. Like how how do you stay sane? Uh, well, uh, so it... Um it's taken some practice, I would say that. And by the way, I'm not, you know, I, I, I drop stuff on the regular as well. So, um, so I, like, I get to the end of my day and <laughs> there's a whole list of things I have not finished. Um, and I, I'm trying to get better about making action. I call them action lists, making action lists that are uh, more achievable within a single day because I think that'll help with feeling like I've accomplished 
a lot by the end of the day. Um, but I make a lot of lists. Uh, that, that's for sure. Um, and then actually Mahmoud was the one who taught me this when we got married because uh, remember, I, I've never really worked in a, in a typical office setting. Uh, like I love working out of coffee shops um, and co-working spaces, my kitchen table. Um, and so what that does is that blends your personal and your work life uh, way too much. Um, and so when Mahmoud and I got married, he is very clear, uh, like he goes to work and he's at work and then he comes home and he's not at work. Um, which I was like, you can work all the time. My office is my backpack. You know, I can, um, and I would say that took a couple of months <laughs> of adjusting, uh, but I'm really, really thankful, uh, for it that, you know, we have dinner together um, in the evenings. We'll just we'll do whatever we want, whether it's going sailing or hanging out with friends or playing board games, you know. And and uh, he also taught me that weekends should be sacred. Um, and that I really, really treasure. Uh, sacred from the from the perspective that you don't work on weekends. Um, and uh, and and I that really helps because like I do, you know, on the regular, I'll do 12, 14 hour days and it's um, it's easier to do it when you're doing something that you really love and really fulfills you. And so like switching between listening, I don't do as much production, you know, that uh, anymore, but the little bits that I still touch are like they they fuel me, you know, and, and so that helps re-energize and then you can switch back to some of the more boring stuff like. I don't know, <laughs> putting a financial forecast together of how we're going to make millions of dollars. Um, so so that that kind of switch back and forth actually really helps. Um, and then the other thing is is being able to switch off on on the weekends and, and in the evenings. That part that part really, uh, really, really helps so that the next day you can you can come back at it, at, you know, with with just as much uh, just as much. <laughs> mental, you know, mental and, and emotional energy for sure. I know that you sail uh, and now we know that you do kickboxing. Um, <laughs> but what are other things that, that you do to fuel your mind beyond like Casey? Mm, I love dancing. Um, and I used the salsa dance. I'm still trying to teach Mahmoud. <laughs> I'm a really terrible teacher, so it's taking a really long time. Um, but, uh, but sometimes I'll just turn the music on and dance in my bedroom and that's, that's pretty wonderful. Um, I really love puzzles, especially in the time of this quarantine. That's, I, I find there's something so satisfying about finishing a puzzle and that you can do it in a single setting, uh, is, is really great because, a lot of the work that we do takes weeks and months to see the final output. Um, and so being able to do something in like, you know, a couple hours is pretty great. Um, I cook a lot. I used to, growing up, I used to bake so much. Um, and all of my siblings will continue and forever tease me for, you know, putting salt instead of baking soda and whatever else and then different experiments of, of muffins and, and brownies and stuff. Um, but I, I've always been cooking or, or baking. Um, and, uh, and that part I, I really enjoy as well. I think, yeah, I, I really think like the older I get, the more it's actually, um, one of my first board members on the, on CIC on the microfinance program, he said this. So he used to, he used to be this big corporate hotshot guy at Pfizer and then was in the venture capital world and 
And when he first said this, I was like, that's such a strange thing to say, but it's really something that I've thought a lot about. And he said, I really take pleasure in ironing my shirts. <laughs> and it's because it's this finite time period, you know, it's five minutes and you start with a wrinkled shirt and you end with this beautifully polished pressed shirt. And here is your accomplishment for your hard work. You know, here's the reward for your hard work and within a couple of minutes. Um, and so I think I seek those kinds of activities as a, um, yeah, I, 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 I like, I like cooking and making puzzles and, you know, stuff that within a short time period, you can see you have a reward for your efforts. Uh, cause yeah, so much of what we do, it takes a really long time to see the rewards. <laughs> I'm going to ask you finally a question that we've often asked our guests. Can you guess what it is? My obituary? I don't know. <laughs> First two lines of your obituary. What would you want them to be? I really don't know. Um, and my sister will, will chide me for not for not thinking about this because I think she thinks a lot about this, about what kind of legacy she wants to leave behind. And um, I don't think, I don't, I don't, I don't think I think in those kinds of <laughs> glorified terms, to be completely honest. Um I don't know. I, I know that I want my family to r remember how much I loved them and how much, how, you know, how much time and the good times that we spent together and my friends. And I, I want the people that I've interacted with on this planet to, you know, think good things of me. Um, but what that all looks like, I, uh, I, I I don't know. That's, yeah, that's up to God. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'll leave behind in the end. How about a multi-million dollar um, podcast network? Yeah, inshallah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do right now? Um, I think it's a ftar time. We're oh gonna, my gosh! Okay. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm well. It's more for Mahmoud. We have to get him food. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Hiba Fisher, I love you so much. I love you, Akhtar. Thank you, Dana. Thank you Thank for this. You for this <laughs> and for for everything. <laughs> um, thanks for um, yeah, thanks for building this with me. <laughs> Thank you, Hayati. This episode was produced by myself, Tamara Rasamni, and Alex Aitak. Sound design by Mohamed Khreizat and Alex Aitak. Fact-checking by Zena Duwaydar and Bella Brahim is our marketing manager. Our original sting was composed by Ramzi Bashur. For the last time this year, thank you so, so much from the bottom of my heart for listening to El Empire. I deeply appreciate it. Just so you know, we're beginning the summer season of our other English show, Kerning Cultures, the OG show, next month. There are stories on there that I'm so excited for you to listen to. If you aren't already subscribed to that, please make sure you do that now. So in whatever podcast app or platform you're listening to, search Kerning Cultures, that's Kerning with a K, and hit subscribe. And maybe while you're at it, hit five stars and write a really nice review, just in case you have a moment. All right. Thank you guys so much. I hope you're well. I hope you're safe. I hope you're home. And I'll talk to you soon. Take care. <laughs>